0: So we're gonna talk about the Gospels and some of the challenges that are given to the Gospels this morning by uh, critics. And we're gonna look at the three major objections that are given against the Gospels. Um, And we'll just call them the ABCs of the Gospels, all right? So let's just jump right into this because I have uh, 25 minutes this morning and I wanna cover a lot of ground. The first is A and that stands for authorship. Now, a lot of critics out there will say that we don't know who wrote the Gospels. You say, well, wait a minute, Mike. They say who wrote the Gospels right at the title in my Bible, the Gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. That's correct. That's what our Bibles say. But the critics will go on and say, but we, when you look at the earliest manuscripts that we have, they don't have, and none of them have the titles on there. And so in essence, all four of our Gospels are anonymous. And we don't know who wrote them, and if we don't know who wrote them, how could we even begin to know whether they're trustworthy?" And that objection sounds pretty decent at first, doesn't it? But then you think about it, let's, let's look at it, just a couple of things in terms of authorship. I want to look at some other ancient literature. And there was a guy uh, who was born around the year 40, died around the year 120, his name was Plutarch. Now, this isn't the Plutarch in the Hunger Games series. This is the real Plutarch. And by the way, if some of you in here are pregnant, I just want you to keep some of these names in mind that we'll be discussing today. (laughs) Plutarch. Okay? So Plutarch wrote over 60 biographies, of which 50 have survived. And a lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. Would you like to know how many of his 50 biographies that we have today have his name in the title? Or have his name anywhere in any of those 50 biographies, zero. None of them. And yet no classical scholar goes around saying, well, we have no idea who wrote Plutarch's Lives because they're all anonymous. So in that case, how do we know Plutarch wrote the, um, those biographies attributed to him? Well, there's something called the Lampreus Catalogue And the Lamprius catalog was written, we don't know exactly when, but it was written between the 3rd and 4th centuries. And it was written by, uh, attributed to Lamprius, who was uh, Plutarch's grandson. Now, Plutarch died around the year 120, and Lamprius is writing in the 3rd or 4th century. How can that be Plutarch's grandson? It's not like they lived a couple hundred years back then. So, um... You know, look at this and say, well, this, the major evidence we have that Plutarch wrote the biographies that we attribute to him, is probably written by someone who we don't know. In fact, it's even being falsely attributed to someone. And yet because of that, classical scholars today are fairly unanimous in saying Plutarch wrote all that literature that has been attributed to him. There's other evidence. So there's good reason for believing that, but that's the primary reason for believing that Plutarch wrote those biographies. Well, what about when we come, oh, by the way, so let me give you a quote from a scholar who teaches at Oxford. His name is Mark Edwards, and here's what he says. It is sometimes wrongly said that gospels are anonymous because the author is not named in the proem. A nodding acquaintance with Plato, Plutarch, Lucian, or Porphyry, to name a few names at random, would have undeceived the victims of this error. What what we typically have within biblical criticism a lot of times, we have biblical scholars who largely are only familiar with the biblical literature. And they're not familiar, many of them that is, I I wouldn't say with all of them, of course, but many of them are, they don't spend time reading the extra biblical sources, the Jewish literature and the Greco-Roman literature that was written contemporary with the biblical literature. And so they're not familiar with some of these things, and so they're bound to make certain historiographical mistakes. So um, that's a problem we have. So now when we come to the Gospels, why do we believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or, and John? How did, the, how did it come about that the Gospels were delivered um, or attributed to these four people? Well, let's look here. Um, there is a, show a chart where it's got that arrow. I just want to show you a couple of sources in the early church. There are others. But you can see starting with Papias around the year 120, he's the first to attribute the Gospels to Matthew and Mark. And then you have some others that go all the way up here. I have it all the way up to Origen. Um, there are others after him. There are others contemporary with these guys. But I just wanted to show you a number of the people that say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the authors of our Gospels. Now, um, it's interesting to note that this is pretty much a unanimous testimony of the early church. Uh, there are two exceptions for the Gospel of John, but other than that, everything is unanimous for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, it's interesting to note there are no, they don't say that Matthew, it wasn't Matthew, but it was the Gospel according to Fred or George. It was always Matthew, Mark, Luke, And John. And when you have that kind of a unanimous testimony, that's got a way in favor of that authorship to the point that anyone who takes a contrary view, well, the burden of proof rests on their shoulders. All right, so here's what we have for the traditional authorship of the Gospels you have Matthew, who is known to be the tax collector and one of the 12 disciples. You have Mark, who was not one of Jesus' disciples, but he got his information primarily from the Apostle Peter. And then you have Luke, who was a physician, a traveling companion of Paul. And he got his information from not only from Paul, but also from eyewitnesses who had known and walked with Jesus. And then John, early church tradition, most scholars think, would interpret it as saying that John was the son of Zebedee and one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So that's the early church tradition. And again, when you have such unanimous church tradition like that, it weighs heavily in favor of the traditional authorship. At least it would seem that these guys, these four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were involved in the composition of these gospels in a major way. Even if we can't be certain of the exact um, role that they played. For example, a lot of people back then couldn't write. And it's possible that fishermen couldn't write. And if that's the case, maybe John couldn't write. Matthew probably could because he was a tax collector. All right. Um, Luke uh, could, because he would have been an educated physician. But John, maybe not. Uh, we don't really know anything about Mark. So um, so how could it be that John would have written it then? Well, back then you had what were called scribes or secretaries. And these people would, you know, for a living, they would write. They would create legal documents because illiteracy was, was uh, so great back then. Maybe only... 10% could read, and maybe only 5% could write. We're not sure the exact figures, but if you could only have 5% writing, you're going to have to have someone write on your behalf. And so a scribe could have done that on behalf of one of the disciples. In fact, Cicero, who was highly educated in law and philosophy, uh, one of the leading figures of the Roman Republic, even though he could write, he had a secretary. In fact, we know Paul, who was highly educated, had a secretary, at least one, because in his very finest writing, the letter to the church at Rome, in chapter 16, verse 22, uh, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, send you my greetings. So Paul had a secretary, a scribe, who would write these things, and they could be involved in editing uh, on a little to a large-scale basis. So who knows? How these guys—they would have—they could have been involved in the gospels, but maybe they had a secretary right for them. If Paul had a secretary. If Cicero had a secretary. Why not those guys? So that could account for a lot of different things. Now, what if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write the gospels? What if they weren't involved in any way whatsoever? Well, we can still compare them because you have, in some cases, multiple independent sources. And this is one of the most valuable things historians look for. If you've got two independent sources that attest to the same thing, and they have to be independent of one another, but if you have two independent sources that attest to the same thing, that significantly increases the probability that what they're reporting is true. So we have that. You've got Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century, an early church father who quotes from the Gospels at least a dozen times and and refers to them as the... um, memoirs of the apostles or just simply the memoirs. So we can see that the early church was even recognizing that at least the content that we find in the Gospels as being, as deriving from the apostles who knew and had walked with Jesus. That's pretty good stuff. But I'd also ask, since you have this unanimous testimony of the early church, what is the probability That every, I mean, look, I'm a student of history and you got to look at probabilities and you say, what is the probability that every single one of those early church fathers got every single thing wrong? It's highly unlikely. So I think we do have some decent reason for thinking that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were involved in the composition of those gospels in a major way. Let's go to the second, and that is bias. Bias. Now, you'll hear uh, critics say, well, we can't trust the Gospels because their authors were biased. In fact, you just look at what John writes in his Gospel. He says, I am writing these things in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, in other words, he's got an agenda. It's propaganda. We can't trust it. Well, you think about this for a moment. You know, I, I, I study the philosophy of history, historical method. I read uh, things written by professional historians and philosophers of history. I can tell you there's a lot of things that historians do not agree on. They don't agree on how they to even define the word history. They don't even agree on what it is exactly that historians are doing. Are they trying to reconstruct the past or are they trying to reconstruct a certain person's narrative of what the past was? Some of them will even say the past is entirely unknowable, that history itself is entirely fiction, that we could never know the past because we're always reading it through the lenses of someone else who has their own biases. That's called postmodernism. So um, you've got all these different uh, views about history. Well, there's one thing that professional historians agree upon almost unanimously, and that is there is no such thing as a detached, neutral, unbiased historian. We all have our biases. We all have our desires uh, for our desired outcomes. And it's not just for things in history or the Bible or religion. It's in everything. It's in things like sports. Think about, uh, now, I'm from Baltimore, okay? So you have to excuse me. I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. Um, I know. You guys have, um, let's see, who do you have here? Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. Eric, tell me later on who you guys have. Cubs, that's right. I could be a Covey fan, you know. So, um, so you know, I'm a Ravens fan. And a few years ago, we were in the Super Bowl. Um, and we were playing the 49ers. And we were the underdogs. They thought we were going to get crushed. I thought we were going to get crushed. I say we, but I'm not, I mean, look, I'm a Ravens fan, but I don't really care. When they won the Super Bowl, no one sent me a check. No one sent me a, a postcard or anything to say, thank you for being a Baltimore Ravens fan. We really appreciate you being part of the family. No, and all the players, as soon as they're ho- offered a higher contract, that's where they go. So, I mean, let's look. I don't lose any sleep when my team loses. It, I mean, it's just relatively, it's meaningless, isn't it? So, but in that Super Bowl, I'm pulling for the Ravens, and, I mean, they were crushing the Niners, and they had all the momentum. And then the second half... They still had the momentum in the third quarter. But then later in that third quarter, the mo changed. And the Niners were coming back, and then they, they were just a few points behind. If they score a touchdown in the last few seconds of the game, they win. They've got a great team, really a better team than Baltimore had that year. And they go back to play, and the quarterback throws to one of his great receivers. And the ball, as you can see, goes slightly over the fingertips of the Niners receiver. And Ravens win. But there's a little bit of contact in the end zone. (laughs) And, of course, the coach on the Niners and the players going, oh, come on, ref, that was pass interference. We get a penalty on that, and we get to move forward at a first down. We get another chance at this thing. And, of course, the ref doesn't call interference. And if you're a Ravens fan, you're saying, that's not pass interference. This is football. Let him play, Right? I mean, we're biased when it comes to things like sports. And I mean, and that's relatively meaningless, right? Right, Cubs fans? <laughs> so, um, and listen, I'm a Braves fan because I'm in Atlanta now. and. Um, We're in a tank. We're the worst team in baseball at this. I went to the game last week, 50,000 capacity stadium. There were about 7,500 there. And when they announced the Braves, no one clapped or stood up. We're just sitting there. There were more Pittsburgh Pirate fans in the stadium than Braves fans. It was sad. It's like eight bucks for a good ticket. I'll take that, you know? It's not just sports in which we're biased. We're biased in things like politics. Nobody's biased in politics, right? You hear the candidates, what they're saying. You can discern everything, what's going on. You have no biases, I know. It also applies to worldviews. If it's going to apply to politics and sports, think how much more bias enters when it comes to worldviews. Now, that's something that's important. I mean, really, if Christianity isn't true, what are we going to do? I mean, we're devoting our life to a fairy tale if you're a Christian in here. What are we going to do about that, you know? So we got some problems there if, if uh, Christianity is true. What if atheism is true? But, you know, atheists have a problem, too, if Christianity's true. So, I mean, we've got our own biases and our hopes and, and, and um, expectations for this. But look at what Garrett said. He's, he's a skeptical New Testament scholar. He's an atheist New Testament scholar. And here's what he, he, he wrote in his book, The Resurrection of Christ, and he's referring to an earlier book that he had written a few years before about the resurrection. Both tried to debunk the resurrection of Jesus, and here's what Ludemann says. Its aim was to prove the non-historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and simultaneously simultaneously to encourage Christians to change their faith accordingly. Was Ludemann biased? Did he have an agenda? You bet. But does that mean he was wrong? No. You have to look at his arguments. What about Richard Dawkins, one of those militant atheists out there? In his book, The God Delusion, he says, if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Is Dawkins biased? Does he have an agenda? Does that mean his arguments are wrong? No. His arguments are wrong because they stink. <laughs> They're weak. His arguments in that book, The God Delusion, are so poor that the atheist philosopher Michael Roos, who teaches at Florida State University, says it made him embarrassed to be an atheist. <laughs> and yet this book by Richard Dawkins has been a bestseller, an atheist. Nerd. Yeah, this is what Dawkins says. But it's so poor arguments when you break them down, logically speaking. Just because they're biased doesn't mean you're wrong, though. You have to look at the arguments. If we're going to rule out people um, and and their reports because they're biased, then that would mean that we could not have an African-American historian writing on slavery in the United States. It would mean that we couldn't have a Jewish historian write on the Holocaust but I propose to you that an African-American historian would be the finest historian to write on slavery in the U.S., that a Jewish historian would be the finest historian to write on the Holocaust. Why? Because this is something that is near and dear to them, and they're more likely to dig deeper than someone else who has no horse in the race. So we don't look at bias and rule out the writings because simply on the basis that the, the writer was biased. If Jesus actually rose from the dead and is who he claimed to be, wow, then we would expect these guys, these biased disciples of his who were out proclaiming the greatest news that this world could ever hear, we would expect them to go out and do this, and we would want them to do it if Jesus was who he claimed to be. Biased, yes. Truth, Yes. Let's look at the third point, the C, contradictions. And this is the big one, contradictions. If you, you hear things such as if the, if the Gospels contradict one another on even just a single matter, they're not trustworthy. I would say that folks who say that, the critics who say that, just don't study history. What I mean, now we're talking about things like divine inspiration or the inerrancy of the text, but those are different matters. If we talk about something like historically reliable uh, versus divinely inspired, two different things. So are the Psalms divinely inspired in the Bible? Yes. Are they historically reliable? What? Yeah, are the Psalms historically reliable? How can you answer that? They're songs, they're poetry. What about Proverbs? Divinely inspired? Yes. Historically reliable? How do you answer that? It's like saying, what's the square root of chicken <laughs> right now? On the other hand, how about Tacitus' annals of Rome or Suetonius' 12 Caesars or Sallust's war with Catiline? Are they historically reliable? Yes. Are they divinely inspired? No. Do they have errors? Yep. Historically reliable? Yes. So we can ask a question, are the gospels historically reliable without even entertaining whether they're divinely inspired? So if we say, if the gospels contradict one another on some accounts, could they still be relaying truth, a general picture of truth of God's revelation? Sure. Let's talk about a couple points about contradictions. Because I I just want to give you a proper perspective, because many Christians, it's like a skeptic will bring up, well, yeah, Matthew and Mark say there's one angel at the tomb, and Luke and John say there were two. See, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Does that follow? Well, the Titanic sank in 1912. Did you know that there were eyewitnesses, survivors, who contradicted one another on an interesting detail? Some said the Titanic broke in half before it sank, and others said, uh-uh, I was there too. It went down intact. Now, how do you get that wrong? You're, it's the most terrifying night of your life. You're in a lifeboat. The only thing you can see is a little under eight, over 800 feet long. It's all lit up, and screams are coming from it. And some say it broke in two and then sank, and others said, nope, it went down in one piece. I don't know how they got it wrong, but I do know this. No one turned around and said... I guess the Titanic didn't sink. <laughs> it just meant there was a peripheral detail that one of the witnesses got it wrong and we didn't know what said it was until the Titanic was discovered in the 1980s. Okay? Here's another thing. If Jesus rose from the dead, I believe he did. I've argued for this at length. I've debated atheists and Muslims on this as well. If Jesus rose from the dead... He, he did so in either the year 30 or 33. Historians aren't, we don't know for certain whether it was 30 or 33 when Jesus was crucified. But if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity was true then, wasn't it? Now the first gospel, we don't know exactly when it was written, but most scholars believe it was the gospel of Mark, and they think it was written sometime between the years 65 and 70. All right? So that's 35 to 40 years after Jesus' death. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, let's say in 30, was, it, was Christianity true in the 35 to 40 years between the resurrection and when the first gospel was written? Sure. Well, let's just assume for a moment that Mark has some errors in it. How would, an, how would errors in Mark's gospel nullify the truth of Christianity when it was true before Mark was even written? Do you see how skeptics... Can take and throw something at us, and it's like, "Oh, whoa! And it rocks your world for a moment, but you step back and you think about it for a moment and say, "Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If there are some errors in the Gospels or contradictions, Christianity's still true if Jesus rose from the dead. So that's what we do. We focus on the main thing, the resurrection, and see if it's true. Let me give you one other thing about contradictions. And this is something that I've worked on for the last uh, eight years, actually. Um, And that is uh, compositional devices, understanding the gospels according to the genre or literary style in which they were written. They belong to the genre of ancient biography. And ancient biography was not as uh, concerned about precision in details like us moderns are. It's kind of like the difference between the guy version of the story and the girl version of the story, right? Girls want all the details. They wanna know what happened, when it happened, where it happened, why it happened, how it happened, who was there, uh, what they said, what they were wearing, what they were thinking, how they were feeling, and then they wanna know how you feel about the story. Yeah, you got it right, buddy, you got it right. Same way in my house, man. So, But guys were different. Just get to the bottom line. The game's coming on in five minutes. I want bullet points. Listen, I don't need, to. You, ever, you ever talking to someone and they just go on and on about these details and you just wanna, <laughs> oh, just wanna bang your head against the wall. That's typical for guys. Now I know this a stereotype. In some cases, I know marriages where it's just the opposite and that guy loses his man card, all right? <laughs> So, but that, that in antiquity, for the most part, you had people giving us the guy version of the story. They didn't matter if you altered the details a little bit, but when you altered the details, it was usually because they wanted to make a stronger point. It's kind of like when Eric said when he was playing professional baseball, one season, he hit 50 home runs. Don't believe it. It's teasing, man. It's cool. I love baseball. That's just a fantastic sport. I just say that because I don't want him to beat me up afterwards, you know. But no, really, that's my favorite sport, baseball. In fact, I know some people get into soccer, and I think soccer is a fantastic sport for children in third world countries where they don't have baseball. So... um, (laughs) So when we look at some differences in the Gospels, we have to understand that they're writing according to the genre that was contemporary at that time, ancient biography, and they allowed some flexibilities. Let me give you one real quickly. We can call it literary spotlighting. Um, or, uh, yeah, literary spotlighting. That's when, you know, you've been in a theater and they, uh, you know there's a bunch of actors on the stage and then the lights go off and the spotlight comes and shines on a single person. You don't see anyone else, but you know they're there. But the focus is all on that single person. Well, you can have literary spotlighting, and that's when an author shines their focus, their spotlight in a text on a single person. There are other people present, there are other participants, but you wouldn't know it because all the focus is on that person. And that person is usually the main character of that biography. So, for example, I won't get into details, but when Plutarch writes the same story about the Catalinarian conspiracy of 63 B.C., Um, and uh, in the life of Cicero by Plutarch, he says that Crassus and uh, Marcellus and Scipio come at night to Cicero's house, and they alert him to the conspiracy to overthrow Rome. Okay, but when you read the same account in Plutarch's life of Crassus, where Crassus is the main character, Plutarch only reports that Crassus came to Cicero's house at night and alerted him. Now, Plutarch knew Marcus and Skippy over there, but in the life of Crassus, he only mentions, he doesn't say just Crassus, but he only mentions Crassus because Crassus is the main character. That's the important thing. You come to the gospels, you got that kind of spotlighting going on in the gospels, in the, in the, uh, in the resurrection narratives. You've got, it says, um, when Mary Magdalene got up early in the morning, she went to the tomb. Remember the other gospels say multiple women, right? They went to the tomb. She went to the tomb and found it empty, and she came back and told Peter and a beloved disciple. Well, was it just Mary or were there many? Well, uh, John doesn't say just many. In fact, there's a clue here that he's using literary spotlighting because when Mary comes back to Peter and a beloved disciple, she says, They have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they laid him. Who's we? Isn't that cool? So there's many accounts like this, and I can tell you from looking at this that there are probably more than 95% of all the differences in the Gospels can be resolved by understanding their biographical nature. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I do have a book. I'm not trying to sell the book, uh, but Eric mentioned it, and uh, it's coming out by Oxford University Press December 1st, and uh, I go in and explain a lot of these things and show all these compositional devices, ancient biography, and then how the gospel authors use the same devices, and that resulted in differences. You can also go to my website, risenjesus.com, because I have a few lectures online um, in which I get into a lot of the specific differences in the gospels, and if you're interested, you can see that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and talk to these folks here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and thank you for any Um, seekers who are here, um, that they've come to just check things out. And I pray that you would speak to them and lead them in truth. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.